Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. We're in the middle of a series that demonstrates how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, check out all the other episodes in Season 3. What do you think when I say the word sick? Do you picture someone lying in bed, thermometer in mouth, with a cartoonish-sized hot water bottle on their head? Maybe somebody coughing? (coughs) A runny nose? Sure, that makes sense. That's what it means to be sick. (coughs) Now, put that image aside. What about righteous? Righteous, like a person who acts in a really pure way, does the right thing every time. Maybe you're picturing a monk or a painting of Jesus your grandmother kept in the living room. Righteous. Yeah, that makes sense. This one may tip my hand, but what do you picture when I say the word sweet? Mm. Cookies? Candy? A bottle of honey? At one time, the definitions of these words were more exact. Nailed down. Sick was someone with the flu. Righteous, a holy being. Sweet was a taste, like eating sugar. These were more concrete concepts back in the day. But then those nifty little concrete ideas got into the wild. Co-mingled with other words, with accents. They were shouted, sung about, whispered, written, and then crossed out. Through all of that, those words changed. Now that these words are out of their plastic wrap, they've come to mean different things. Hang out in the skateboarding, surfing, or ski community any amount of time, and you'll hear them used completely differently. Sick, righteous, sweet. They're all used to mean, hey, I like that. That's pretty cool. That's the thing with languages. Words morph, shapeshift when they're used by different kinds of people in different times. The same is true for concepts. Take communism and socialism, two words that we hear a lot about these days. President Trump has been talking about them, like when he addressed the United Nations General Assembly on September 24, 2019. Here he is on C-SPAN. One of the most serious challenges our countries face is the specter of socialism. It's the wrecker of nations and destroyer of societies. Events in Venezuela remind us all that socialism and communism are not about justice. Socialism and communism are about one thing only, power for the ruling class. Sometimes in his speeches, communism and socialism are used interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. Which leads one to wonder, are they really the same thing? We're spending a lot of time learning about the rise of communism in Russia, because it played a huge role in shaping American Christianity in the 20th century. So we should probably know what communism is, right? The trick is, it can feel pretty complicated. I figured, who could better explain it to me than a middle school history teacher? I'm somewhat in over my head on this show. 
Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when I saw your text, I was like, oh man. I called my friend Brian Feinrich. He teaches middle school history east of Los Angeles. Uh, you, the further you go, the more you realize you don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the beauty of education. <laughs> yeah, you are always an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no matter how much you learn, there's always something, there's always a way to go deeper with it. Let's dig a little deeper. Figure this thing out. We're going to create a textbook idea of communism. Compare that to a textbook definition of socialism. And then, because words and concepts change when they're out in the wild, we're gonna blow this whole thing up. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. Communism, socialism, communism, you can only say that so many times fast. Like that, that kind of brings us around to the big hairy question that I have really struggled to answer, which is what is socialism and what is communism and how are they different? So they're, they're very similar. Which is something to keep in mind moving forward. They sound very similar to each other because, don't tell anyone I said this, they are very similar. Not only that, but they don't tend to exist in their pure forms out in the wild. They're always crossing into each other's lanes. Brian and I are going to give you a textbook definition. But that definition is like one of those sticky hands you had as a kid. The kind you throw up against a window and it stays there. Pristine in its plastic little egg when you get it at the grocery store. But the minute you get it out in the real world, it gets pretty hairy in no time flat. I would say they're, kind of, they're in the same family. They have the same kind of basic concept that this is where it gets hard. <laughs> There's conflict within the social classes based on what do you do with surplus? What do you do with extra? What do you do with profit? Who gets that? Do the workers get the profit? The money and resources left over once you pay for the cost of making, distributing, and selling your goods. That leftover money is called profit. The question is, who gets it? The owners of the business, or the state, or the employees? Where does the profit go? To summarize Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, There's going to be conflict on how to do that. Who gets it? How do you divide it up? If I put in a hard day out there in the fields, plowing, planting, weeding, seeding, and my boss walks away with all the goods, I'm going to get angry. I did all the work. Why should they see all the benefit? 
That is slavery. Under capitalism, I would put in a hard day's work in the field, plowing, planting, weeding, feeding, seeding, and at the end of the week, my boss pays me money, or gives me produce, or a trade, or whatever. I get something for my work. Even under this system, there's tension. What if my boss isn't paying me enough? Or if I get hurt? Ouch! That pits me and my boss against each other. Marx attempted to end this conflict. In both socialism and communism, the citizens own the means of production. The stuff that makes stuff is owned by the government, who then, hopefully, distributes use of those means to the people. Both ideas are supposed to take care of your basic human needs. Now, sounds pretty similar, right? Here is where they're different. What do they do with the profit? Are you ready? Here comes socialism. In socialism, the ideal solution is that a democratically elected government controls how you make this stuff, how you produce things, and decides who gets what as compensation, who gets part of the extra stuff based on, you know, their ability to uh, contribute, their, their merit, their physical ability, even their um, economic ability. Two big things there. Under socialism, I get to vote for my government. Then that government distributes goods to me based on my contribution, how much work I do, etc. This is the key. I get compensated for my effort. If I'm lazy, I'm not going to get very much. If I work hard, I'll get more. That is socialism. Voting and goods based on my contribution. Let's contrast that with communism. The ideal is that the collective, everyone else in the community or country, decides who gets what and distributes everything. In communism, there isn't this idea of private property. There is no private property in communism. Under a pure form of communism, everyone owns everything. You want a house? The government provides you a house. You want a vacation home? Use one of the government-issued vacation homes. We just talked about a lot of big concepts. Why not work with an example? Think about the clothes on your back. The clothes on your back in communism wouldn't be yours. They would be the community. When you outgrow those clothes, those clothes are... You, you give those clothes back to the community and they decide and the community decides who needs those clothes. They could even take back your clothes if they needed to distribute them to other people. Your clothes are not really yours. They belong to the people, controlled by the government. Under socialism, the democratically elected state would make the clothes and based on your ability to work and contribute to society, you would get you know, those clothes, and you would be able to keep those. Got it? That's the difference in a nutshell. There are a few hiccups, though. Socialism, because it allows for the ownership of goods, provides reason not just to work, but to work hard. Because you can profit from your work. Let's say under socialism, I'm busy at the factory all day making grommets. I make grommet after grommet, and maybe I do a little overtime. At the end of the day, 
I get a little boost. A little something extra for all my labor. Here you are, Mr. Sterren. Here's a nice little bonus. Under communism, I'd go to work all day making grommets. I'd make so many grommets, one after another, and then I'd put in some overtime. At the end of the day, I get nothing extra. Even though I worked hard, like harder than all of my coworkers, I get nothing extra. The obvious downside of communism is that I don't get rewarded for working hard. So maybe the next day I go to work and I don't know, I'd make a couple of grommets, but I don't have that much incentive because on payday, I get the same as everybody else. Why work hard if you can get paid the same amount to be lazy? Pure communism assumes that you're going to work. Of course you're going to work. People love work. Work is its own reward. However, under communism, if you take it easy, like don't work, you get the same amount as the person who is hustling. I don't have the same motivation to maintain my stuff. I, I have a car that belongs to the community and I'm taking it to get to work. But if my neighbor needs it and he can just take it, then wh why am I going to try to take care of oil changes? Why am I going to try to maintain it and take care of it? And if, you know, again, back to the idea of clothes, middle schoolers have a hard time taking care of anything to begin with. But um, <laughs> if the idea is, oh, the clothes that I'm wearing today could be taken for me or that somebody else needs it and I need to give it away. Well, it's not really mine, so why would I take care of it? That is a big problem. Why maintain goods if they don't belong to you? That sounds pretty tidy, like easy enough. But there's something important to keep in mind. Karl Marx, the guy who wrote the Communist Manifesto, did not like religion. Ever heard the phrase, religion is the opium of the masses? That was Marx. Equating religion to opium, bringing us to yet another difference between communism and socialism, communism is, by definition, atheistic. As soon as communism took over Russia, religious people of many different stripes became a target. There you go, the difference between communism and socialism in a neat little plastic egg you get from the grocery store, courtesy of a middle school history teacher. There comes a time, though, when we need to get this thing out into the real world, see how it holds up, and things are going to get a little hairy. We'll be back in just a moment. Now we've got these sweet, righteous, sick definitions of communism and socialism. Well, what happened when communism was first let loose into the real world? To help us tell the story, I spoke with Barbara Engel. She is a retired professor emerita at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's the author most recently of Russia in World History and an incredibly patient person for walking me through this. Let's take a look at that shape-shifting through the lens of farmers. When the communists took control, they made the farms into collectives in a process known as, can you guess it, collectivization. Instead of a farmer owning their land, the government owned it. They staffed it with workers, and food was then distributed among the people. That was collectivization. Collectivization of agriculture, um, essentially, in, in my language, 
proletarianized <laughs> the, um, the, the, the agricultural labor force. That is it to say, it deprived them of control of the means of production, the land, and the product of their labor, the corn, if you will. They didn't own the land. They didn't own the goods produced by the land. That is pure communism. Like if you'd grown a communist country in a lab with no outside forces acting on it. But it didn't stay that way in Russia. The resistance was so fierce in the 30s um, that in 1936, the Soviet Union, the government, ceded to members of collective farms the area around their humble home, the so-called private plot. A teeny bit of capitalism sneaked in. The pure definition of communism morphed because of protest. Instead of the government owning everything, people could farm these private plots and keep the produce for themselves. Or sell it. So long as they continued to work on the collective farms, the ones owned by the government. Collectivization was a terrible idea, killing untold scores of people. Here is Roland Elliott Brown, author of the book Godless Utopia. I want want to add a few words on Stalin's collectivization because, um, I mean, I don't want it to sound as if I'm uh, presenting it as a reasonable policy. It was an extraordinarily uh, catastrophic and and violent policy, which... uh, led to death and starvation on on an extraordinary scale. Collectivization was introduced by force. The peasants had been serfs until the 1860s as well. They'd they'd been slaves. They'd been owned by landowners. Uh, And so when Stalin wanted to force them all onto collective farms, they interpreted it as a a second serfdom. It was like they were being re-enslaved. The people had good reason to resist. They had only recently become free. They didn't want to be enslaved again. And uh, the peasants in the countryside received it as some kind of, uh, as some kind of apocalypse. And they, they saw Stalin as the Antichrist, and, and they thought of it in terms of the book of Revelations. They encountered it as, as the end times. There were so many downsides to this policy. For one, it created a massive brain drain. Farmers who knew how to work the land were exiled and replaced by people who may not have known how to grow their crops. Not to mention, workers on collective farms did not have incentive to work hard. They were compensated the same way even if they were lazy. There was no incentive to put in a good day of work. But those private plots where people could scrape together a little extra took off. By 1978, 60 to 65% of potatoes grown in the Soviet Union were grown on private plots. Compared to them, the collective farms didn't run so well. Since their lousy farm equipment destroyed the crop, the majority of potatoes grown on collective farms were picked by hand in 1978, which required a lot of labor, a lot of people, like more than those assigned to the farms which meant that in September and October, city people, factory workers, teachers, professionals in suits and ties were transported to farms to pick potatoes, living in tents to keep the nation from starving. Collectivization suffered from a lack of good equipment and qualified workers. The private plots picked up the slack. 
In the 70s, the private sector produced one-third of the meat and eggs and a quarter of the vegetables. No small amount of capitalism in a communist country. The private plot farmers even had their own markets with which to sell their goods. A strong example of how the operating principles of communism shifted over time due to necessity. Let's say that instead of farming that you were a factory worker. Here's Barbara Engel again. The factory would not only pay a worker a wage, but he was if he was the sor- usually the source of the workers' housing. The government took care of your living quarters. Food was distributed at work. So workplaces meant a lot in the Soviet period. I mean, it provided for people's basic needs. There was no unemployment in the Soviet Union. There was underemployment. I mean, you wouldn't believe what people did for a living. I mean, you'd, you'd ride the subway, and there at the end, which are very, very long, and there at the bottom would be standing a woman uh, whose job it was to make sure you didn't misbehave on the subway. That was a job, and she got paid. People weren't paid that well. There were shortages. They were crowded together. Um, the consumer items left a lot to be desired when you could find one at all. Uh, lines were common in the late Soviet period. Certainly, um, hunger was a real factor in the 30s. It was again after World War II in 1947. was a famine year in the Soviet Union. Uh, there were something like 26 million homeless people. Um, because of the war, refugees. So, so I mean, yes, it was a, there was hardship. Granted, life had not been so sweet under the Romanovs either. What about stuff? Things you have around the house. Ownership depended on what stuff you were talking about. So if you bought a television, right, it's yours. If you bought an apartment or, or a cooperative apartment, it's yours. Um, but the land is not yours. The factory is not yours, at least until 1985. Um, the means of production remain socially owned till the end. The, th- the things that produce other things. So you could own some things in communist Russia, just not land and the means of production, except for the private plots. Not the purest form of communism. Maybe you can see why it's so hard for us to talk about communism and socialism. Quite often, We're talking about different things. If you're sitting around chatting with your college buddies and one of them extols the vision of Karl Marx, you have to ask, which vision? The dictionary definition or the thing it became in Russia? Does the government control everything or like in China in recent years, are there small markets that spring up? Does entrepreneurship find a way to work within the system? There are also questions of the inherent atheism of communism, the fact that everything is supposed to belong to the people, but is clearly just owned by the government. For communism to work, it would require benevolent, dare I say, righteous leadership. And not just at one point in history, but throughout time. I think I speak for a lot of historians when I say, good luck with that. Communism is not a pure concept. It brings with it a lot of baggage. An understanding of that baggage is key to decoding what is happening in our political sphere, especially as we near the 2020 US presidential elections. Healthcare is going to be one of the big topics, but we're not listening to each other when we discuss it. When Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren talk about socialized healthcare, 
How do those who disagree with you, like whoever it is that disagrees with you, depending on your side, how do those people hear those words? Socialized healthcare. Socialized healthcare. Let me challenge you to put down your shield for a moment. To my liberally minded friends, you know I care about you, but you need to hear this. When conservatives, especially Christians, hear the word socialism, as in socialized healthcare or democratic socialism, they do not hear the pure textbook definition Brian and I gave you. It does not conjure up images of happy people living in equality. The term has picked up new meaning, in no small part because communism, which looks so much like socialism, is synonymous with several of the deadliest regimes in history. Regimes under Stalin, Khrushchev, and Mao persecuted, among others, Christians. We'll talk about that persecution in detail very soon. One of the reasons we can't talk about healthcare in this country is because of this shape-shifting in our language. And Republican lawmakers will bludgeon any plan that smells of communism. All they have to do is conjure images of dissidents being shot or locked in gulags. Liberals, you're fighting a battle not for healthcare, but of semantics. And I'm not sure that you know that. It's not just that it's confused in our minds. According to Roland Elliott Brown, the author of Godless Utopia, which we will talk about in depth in a future episode, some Russians today see what happened in their country not as communism, but is socialism. If you if you tell if you tell people who lived in the Soviet Union that they lived in in a communist country, they'll correct you and say, "No, we lived under socialism," because communism is 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 heaven on earth. It, it's it's the fulfillment of of Marx's prescription of uh, from each according to his ability, uh, to each according to his needs, uh, which of course has never been affected in in human history and probably never will be. Communism is a utopian idea. It's that textbook definition where there's food for everyone. A worker's paradise. A place where religion isn't really that important because people are so happy. Of course, that never happened. As Roland puts it, socialism was the tool the Soviets used to hopefully achieve Communism. You can think of communism in religious terms. It's like uh, the atheistic equivalent of the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, within the Soviet ideological universe, revolutionary violence was something like the last judgment, and, and, and communism was, was the final, uh, highest ideal. The violence they used to establish Soviet-era Russia was akin to the tribulation in the Book of Revelations from the Bible. And communism, which looks like everybody living in peace and having plenty to eat and a house over their head, that the perfect society was like their idea of heaven on earth. Utopia. Don't worry if you're confused. The trouble when we sit down to talk about how to make this world a better place is that a lot of times, we're talking about different things using similar words. It's hard to even tell you which countries are socialized today because there's a spectrum. Yes, some have wide social safety nets, but don't own the means of production. Others own the means of production, but have terrible policies concerning human rights. Do an internet search for which countries are actually socialist today. It's no wonder people are confused. 
our dictionary definition of socialism goes feral really quickly in the real world. But does that mean, conservatives, who I'm going to address now, that it's okay to take every change to the system and label it as socialism? It has become a way for conservatives to be manipulated. If right-wing conservative pundits and leaders don't like something, they just call it socialist. Why? Because they know that the fear of the Soviet Union is still very real in the hearts of religious people. As it should be because religious people were targeted for death and hard labor. But unchecked fear leaves us vulnerable. It gives the devil a foothold in our lives. My dear conservative friends, if you don't properly deal with your fear of persecution, your fear will be used to control you, to make you slap the name of Christ on anything that opposes communism and socialism, even if that cause is unjust or murderous. We're willingly being used as pawns in this game all the time, over and over. They tell us to be afraid and will align ourselves with any kind of evil to avoid persecution. If you don't believe me, give me a few months to prove it. If we don't understand the legacy of communism and how the word communism has been used to manipulate conservatives, we are destined to react in terrible ways. Which brings us back to our original study in words, sick, sweet, and righteous. Allow me to summarize my argument. We are not called to the sickness of fear or to chase the sweetness of revenge, but to live in a way that is righteous. Subscribe to our feed so that you get all the latest episodes as they're released. And we're on track to have a new episode every two weeks. Special thanks to my friend Brian Feinrich for his insight. I hope to have more of him on the show in the future. I'm also grateful to Barbara Engel. Again, her latest book is called Russia in World History. We'll be hearing more from her soon. I'm also indebted to Roland Elliott Brown, author of the book Godless Utopia about the visual propaganda used in the Soviet Union. This won't be the end of him, either. Here is my challenge this week. Tell at least one person about this show. We're a spunky upstart trying to change the face of Christian media. The world of Christian podcasts is mostly lifestyle stuff, how to homeschool or ways to improve your worship service, which is cool. But we're all about exploring how we got here and how we can do better with humor and high production values. If you like what we're doing here, tell a friend. We've got tons of graphics and videos on our social media feeds that you can share. Let's fill our feeds with support. Visit us on trucepodcast.com and you'll get access to bonus material, including a chance to join our email updates list. And if you join the list, you'll get access to our free Media Fast Curriculum, which challenges you to go through one week without media. It's actually a lot of fun. Once you're on the website, you can also learn more about my novel, Cradle Robber. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.